We are in Romans chapter 1. As many of you know, we are going to be looking and concluding our study of verses 24 through 32 this morning. So if you could turn there in your Bibles, that would be appreciated. If you don't have a Bible, just grab one of those blue ones underneath the seats around you. Turn to page 939. That will bring you to this particular section of Romans. What I thought I would do is, this is actually part three. So we've had, now this will be the third message in just this particular section of of Romans, verses 24 through 32. I thought it might be helpful just to do a little bit of review, kind of catch everybody up, and then we will conclude, Lord willing, today in this section, and we'll move on to chapter two of Romans. So let me give you a little bit of review. Romans 1.18, you're beginning at verse 18 of chapter 1, extending all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. That whole section, Paul will devote it to proving that all of humanity is absolutely guilty before God. Absolutely guilty. And he's doing that because he wants to make it clear that because they are guilty, they are in desperate need of a Savior. Jesus Christ, the Lord, the divine Son of God, the saving one. Beloved, to deny that, to deny that humanity is not really in need of a Savior, they're not really that bad, is really to deny the biblical revelation and to deny reality. When he gets to Romans 1.18, this first section, this first part, he'll begin to prove that the Gentile world is guilty before God. And we've talked about this. He divides the world into two groups of people primarily, Gentiles and Jews. We'll see this come up again throughout the book of Romans. Gentiles are non-Jewish people. So that would include all the nations, all of the different nations would kind of fall under that category of Gentile. So he starts by demonstrating that the Gentile world is guilty. And when we get to chapter 2, he'll discuss the Jewish people, and he'll also address the fact that they, all, they too as well are guilty before God. Now how he does that is he says, listen, the Gentile world has had general revelation from God. God has revealed himself to them through his creation. Okay, everyone knew that God had revealed himself to the Jewish people. There was no doubt about that. These were God's chosen people. He identified himself with the nation. He was the God of Israel. The God of Israel. That's how they referred to him. Not one of the gods of the nations, but the God of Israel. He gave them his law. He dwelt among them. He sent them prophets that spoke to them on God's behalf. The Jewish people knew a lot about the one and true God. But what about the Gentile world? What about the other nations? Are they really guilty before God if they don't even know about this God? And so Paul makes it clear that, yes, they are guilty before God because they have been made aware of the one true God through the things that he has created. And this is just the material that we have covered in the past several weeks. We called that general revelation. But guess what? Because of man's condition, because of his sinful heart, he rejected that revelation. He rejected it. He suppressed the truth of God. And that ultimately subjected them to God's condemnation because they refused to accept the truth of God. And beyond that, they chose rather to worship and serve Idols. Idols. And idols, beloved, are simply a god or gods of, one, of one's own making or imagination. Okay? That's what idolatry is. It is creating a god in your own mind or in your own heart and then worshiping that god as the one true god or gods. And so we talked about that, that the reality is the world's many false religions that exist, are you, you know, you're aware that there are many, many religions in the world, Right? Well, they're all false. They're all false, according to the Word of God, except one. And the reason that we have so many is not because God has provided multiple paths to to himself. That is not the case. It is because 
man rejects his creator. And yet he has been wired to worship. He has been built to worship, but he refuses to worship the one true God. So he creates idols, gods or a god of his own imagination, and worships them instead of God. Consequently, we have a host, a plethora of false religions in this world. They are really just a sign of humanity rejecting their creator. This is a rebellion against God. And this rebellion has resulted in God's wrath. Again, all of what I'm telling you, we have drawn out right out of this section in Romans 1, 18 through 32. Okay? So this is just a reminder of you. When we talked about God's wrath, we said God's wrath is his holy anger against sin and his judgment against it. God hates sin. God loathes sin. In the future, beloved, you know, when we read the book of Revelation, we know that God is going to pour out his judgment in full, and it will be terrifying, frightening, nothing that the world has ever seen. You think the tornadoes are bad? You think those are bad? You think earthquakes are bad? You think the devastations that we experience now on this earth are bad? They are nothing. They are nothing compared to the wrath of God that is to come upon this planet, upon the people here, when he pours it out in full against sin. And we know that's coming. We don't know when, but we know it's coming, according to the biblical revelation. But God, even now, in a lesser way, according to Romans 1, this section is pouring out his wrath. It is made known even now to us in a lesser way. God's wrath against idolatry is being revealed, beloved. Idolatry. Against the rejection of Him. Against the choice to choose to worship a God that is not God. A God of one's own making. So how is God's wrath revealed? How is it revealed? How do we see it? How do we know it exists even now? Well, there's this phrase used three times in this section that God gave them up to or over to their sin. Three times it's repeated. That's what the outline is based on here. Three times it says, because they rejected me, because they suppressed the truth that I have given to all through my creation, concerning myself, because they don't want anything to do with me, and yet they continue to be religious, they continue to worship, not me, but a God of their own fancy, because they have done that, I have chosen to give them over. To give them over in my wrath. And so we talked about this. This is by way of review. Here's a couple of quotes concerning God's wrath here. One, says, one writer says, God's wrath mentioned in Romans 1 is not an active outpouring of divine displeasure. That's what will happen in the end. That's what we will see as revelation becomes history to us. That future, those future events become history. It's not that, not in Romans 1, but this wrath is the removal of restraint that allows sinners to reap the just fruits of their rebellion. He removes his sovereign restraints. One writer says it this way, divine judgment is God permitting people to go their own way, to do their own thing. To fulfill the lust of their hearts is another way to say that. That's what's going on in Romans 1. One writer said this. This is a new quote to you. I like this. If you can look at the world when God removes all his restraining forces and lets sinners wander in their sins, that is hell. That is the wrath of God. No man can say this response of God is not righteous. No man can say that God is not just in pouring out his wrath in this way, even as they refuse to know God. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them over. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 1 in this section. What did God give them up to? What did God give them over to? Well, we've looked at two of them so far. First, to impurity. 
He gave them up or over to impurity, over to sexual immorality as we examine that word in its context here in Romans 1 and other places in Scripture. He gave them over to the dishonoring or degrading of their bodies with one another. Second, he gave them over to dishonorable passions. We talked about this last week. To exchanging natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Rejecting God's purpose for the different genders and redefining God's design for human sexuality. Beloved, he gave them over to homosexuality. That's clearly what the text is talking about. We looked at that last week in detail. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to look at that or to at least download that sermon and and listen to it. All of this, all of this just demonstrates the depravity of man, the corruption of man, the sinfulness of humanity. When God removes his restraints, men don't run off and do wonderful things. They don't make the world a better place for us all. When God removes his restraints, because humanity is corrupted, men make the world a living hell. That's the reality. I don't need to tell you that, beloved. You already know that if you would think about it for a while. The reason for the poor poor and lousy moral condition of our world is not that people are uneducated. That is not the problem. It is not that we don't have enough laws. That is not the problem. The problem is men in their sin reject God. They want nothing to do with God. And God in His wrath says, fine. And He gives them over to their sin. And as a result, morality goes down the drain. Just like that. Thank you for the sound effects, sound team. And why does He do this? He does it so that they might reap the just fruits of their rebellion. We talked about that. As man plunges further into his sin, his life will be ruined, destroyed, devastated, annihilated. As he plunges further into sin. Sin, beloved, brings forth terrible consequences. Do you know that to be true? I don't, I don't have to tell you that. You know that to be true. When God gives them over to their sin, it is a form of his judgment. Of his wrath. With all of that now, you're ready to read the text again with me. So look back at the text, Romans 1.18. We're going to start there. We're going to read to verse 32. Open up your Bibles and follow along with me. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. 
They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Inside of your bulletins, there's an outline. You'll see this note there that we are going to conclude this morning considering how God's wrath is revealed. We started down this path a couple of weeks ago. We're considering how exactly is God's wrath revealed? How is it made known to us against this wrath that is against idolaters, against those who suppress the truth of God, reject God, and worship idols instead? And we're doing that so that we might better understand humanity's depravity their corruption, their wickedness, and the reason for the moral condition of our world. Just so I'm clear, when I talk about humanity, I'm not talking about someone outside of this room. I'm including us. We are humanity. Okay? We are humanity. And beloved, we are, we are born depraved. We are born with corrupted hearts. That's the point here. It's important for you to understand that, and as we... As we move through this, you'll, you'll understand why that's so important to understand. Here, we see that God gave them up to, as we work through this text, He gave them up to impurity. We already dealt with that two weeks ago. Last week, He gave them up to dishonorable passions. And finally, He gave them up to a debased mind. God gave them up to a debased mind, point three. That's the point we're on today. And so we'll conclude here and end up in chapter two next week. So look back at the text with me, Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Verse 28. Just read it again. And since they, the same they is flowing through the whole text, he's talking about the same people. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that is the Gentiles, those who rejected God, who suppressed the truth about God, the non-Jewish nations, people. Since they did that, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So here we go. For the third time in this section of Romans, Paul tells us that God gave them up or over to something. Up or over to something. Because that another translation, that's the words that are used, over. Either way it works. He gave them up or over to something. First, in verse 24, it's right there in your text. He gave them up or over to impurity. Then, in verse 26, it says he gave them up or over to dishonorable passions. And lastly, here in verse 28, it says that as a result of God's wrath against idolatry, he gave them up to a debased mind. And again, why did God do this? Because, I've already said it, because of humanity's sinful suppression and rejection of the knowledge concerning God that he has made available to all through the world that he has created. And in addition, humanity's foolish attempt to rid themselves of any knowledge of God. All right? So not only do they have a limited knowledge of God through creation that they are exposed to, that they're made aware of, but instead of responding to that knowledge and seeking more, instead of saying, I see you, God, help me see you more, they reject, suppress that knowledge. That's what they do. And because God has wired all people to be worshipers, they have to worship. They, in their sin and rebellion, create a God or gods of their own making and then worship and serve them. That's idolatry. That's what verses 18 through 22 are describing. This is what has happened. This is what has happened with the Gentile nations, with the Gentile world. And, and we're just living on the other side of that, of all these false religions. Now, it is this very same issue of suppression of the truth and choosing to worship idols. It is this very same issue that Paul is referring to in verse 28. When he just says again, this is another way of saying the same thing. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Since they didn't see fit to do that, God gave them over or up to a debased mind. The NIV, to help you understand that phraseology there that he uses that statement, the NIV translates it this way, that very verse, verse 28. 
Furthermore, since they, the truth suppressors, the idolaters, the rebels, sinners, humanity, the Gentile world, since they did not think it worthwhile, they didn't think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, to hold that knowledge that they had. No, they suppressed that knowledge. They tried to rid themselves of that knowledge. But since they didn't think it was worthwhile for them to consider God and hold on to that knowledge that they had, he gave them over to a depraved mind. A depraved mind. You could also say it this way. You could say it this way. Since they did not think God was worthy of being acknowledged, you, do you understand that? Do you understand what a smack in the face that is to God? They didn't think He was worthy of being known. Their Creator. Since they didn't think He was worthy of being acknowledged, God gave them over to a worthless mind. To a worthless mind. You don't think I'm worthy? Then have a worthless mind, because that's what you have. That's what he did. That's what God did. Paul goes on to tell us that being given over to a debased or depraved mind, it leads to people doing things that are not proper to do. What is he talking about? It means doing things that are not morally right. So as God gave people over to a debased mind... That mind led to people doing things that were not right to do. That's what the text is saying. You with me so far? So let me explain it this way. When sinners abandon God, when they dismiss Him from their lives, and they become idolaters, As a consequence, God, in His holy wrath, abandons them to themselves. He abandons them to themselves. They don't want anything to do with God. They're abandoning God. They're running away from God. Doesn't mean they're not religious. They're very religious. But they don't want anything to do with the one true God, the one they are absolutely accountable to. Because of sin, because of rebellion that man is born with. And because of that, he abandons them to themselves and they are left with a depraved mind. Minds, beloved, that are unable to think clearly or with absolute clarity about morality. Did you hear what I just said? A depraved mind. A mind that is unable to think clearly or with absolute clarity about morality. Minds corrupted and undermined by their own sin, and therefore quite capable and responsible for producing all kinds of unrighteousness and wickedness in their lives. That's what's going on. In verses 29 through 31... Paul goes on to make it very clear what he means when he says that God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna explain himself here. And he does that by listing 21 sins. This is what I mean. When I say that they rejected God, God rejected them, in His wrath gave them over to a debased mind, a depraved mind, to do what ought not to be done, here's exactly what I mean. Here's a list of 21 sins that characterize a godless world. A world that rejects the one true God and worships idols instead. Now, before we look at this list, because that's what I'm going to do, I want to look at each one briefly. Paul is not suggesting here, you've got to understand this, he's not suggesting that every single idolater is equally sinful or that they're even guilty of every sin that is listed. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying every single person that rejects God 
and worships idols, does all these things. Rather, the list is intended to thoroughly demonstrate the utter depravity of the Gentiles or the Gentile world as a whole. That's what he's doing. He's just listing out all these things saying, look, they are ruined. And the list proves the true unrighteousness and undeniable guilt of humanity before God. Okay? You can't get through the list, beloved. You can't get through that. You can't even get halfway through the list without going, we are messed up. When God removes his restraining forces, this is the result. He is working, Paul is working to establish the desperate and absolute need for sinners to completely trust in or have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Do you hear me? He wants to level you and me. He wants to leave us so low that we don't look to ourselves to be saved. That we realize how utterly foolish it would be to think that I could merit favor with God. That somehow, somewhere deep inside of me, I'm truly a good and wholesome and righteous person. He wants to destroy that stupid idea. And he wants to tell the truth. That mankind, beloved, is ruined morally. They are ruined. They are born with sinful hearts. Corrupt hearts. And when you pull away the leash and let them do their own thing, this is what happens. And so if they hope to be saved, their only hope will be faith alone. Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, who has made it possible through what He has done alone to make sinners right with God. That's what He's doing. That's what he's doing. So let's do this. Let's look at it together. Beginning in Romans 1.29. Paul says, listen. God gave them over to the debased mind to do those things that are not proper to do. Let me illustrate. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. When God gives sinners over to a debased or depraved mind, it does not yield or produce righteousness okay that's not what happens rather it yields or produces unrighteousness of every kind and sort so let's just break this down unrighteousness that word in the english standard version the one that we use here it's translated wickedness in the niv wickedness the greek word means this wrongfulness or wrongdoing Okay, wrongfulness or wrongdoing, that which is not right or is wicked or evil. That's primarily what the word means. Let me ask you a question. Who ultimately determines what is not right or what is wrong? Who determines that? Our society. Is that who we want determining what is wrong? Oh, I hope not. I hope not. There are some societies that have no problem with genocide. Our own society had no problem with racism, slavery. I hope we're not going to let society determine what is wrong. How about uh, a majority? Should that be the way we determine what is wrong? Whoever has the most votes... That would be very dangerous, beloved. How about a minority? Should the smaller group get to determine what is wrong or what is evil or what is wicked? How about a government? How about actors or actresses from Hollywood? Now, see, you laughed, right? You laughed at that. You thought that was ridiculous. And I think it's ridiculous too. I'm in agreement with you. But I am shocked 
at how much we give. I'm speaking we in just some general way. I'm not including myself in that. But our society gives themselves to an actor or an actress who stands up and starts making moral statements as if those statements are weighty. And we should come under them and go, wow, because you, you put your face on a screen, now I should listen to you, a wise one. I don't get it. That shows how messed up our culture is. We let them determine for us what is moral and what isn't? Beloved, I just brought all that up to say, the only one who gets to determine what is right and what is wrong is the one who happened to create the world we live in, the one who created us. It's his world. It's his rules. He gets to say what's right. He gets to say what's wrong. He's the standard, period. Not what I want to be right, not what I want to be wrong, not what the government says, not what some actress or actor says, not a majority, not a minority, not some messed up society. It is God alone. Do you see? That's the Christian position. Otherwise, you're left to the other options I gave you. Is that where you want to be? Those options have have wreaked havoc on our world and continue to wreak havoc. God is the ultimate authority in morality. How about evil? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, evil in the ESV is translated wickedness in the New American Standard Bible. The Greek word here can include the idea of a desire to do harm. We're just going to move through these. Some of these I'll spend a little more time on. How about the third one there? Covetousness. You guys know what that is? Covetousness. In the, it's translated in our translation here, but in the NASB and the NIV, New International Version, and I'm quoting these because they're good translations, popular translations, it's translated greed. So if you don't know what covetousness, you could put the word greed there. It fits. This is the relentless, excessive, and insatiable desire or craving for more and more and more and more. And greed seeks to accumulate more without any concern for anyone else. That's how you need to think about greed. Now, some say greed is good. That's not true, beloved. If you believe the Word of God, it's not true. Greed is Sin. Greed is wickedness. Greed has wreaked havoc in our world and in our economy. When we think of greed, we typically just think of a desire for more stuff, right? But it could also include an unquenchable desire for more power. For more power. Doing whatever it takes to get to that next spot in the corporate ladder. Or more fame. Or even more pleasure. Greed could be applied to that. You just can't get enough pleasure. You're just addicted to sex. Just never get enough. Greed. And greed is often the foundation of other sins as well, right? Thievery, stealing, lying, deceit, even murder, beloved. Many times greed is associated with these things. How about malice? Malice in the ESV translated evil in the New American Standard Bible and depravity in the NIV. So just understand what's going on is that as these translators look at the Greek words, they try to come up with the best English word to describe and capture all that that Greek word communicates. And sometimes we we just have a hard time getting the right English word. So that's why I give you just to get the full weight of this word. So in one case... Malice is it's translated, the Greek word is translated malice. In another case, evil, depravity. They're all kind of communicating a nuance of this Greek word. But it basically means badness. That's what it means, badness. And is closely related to wickedness or evil. So now following these four general sins that Paul lays out. Hey, this is what they're, they're filled with. All manner of this stuff. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. He now moves into a 17 additional sins, and these are a little more specific. Now, it's important to remember, as we move through this text, that this is all the result 
of people abandoning the true God and God in his wrath abandoning them to themselves or permitting them to go their own rebellious way. You understand that? That's what's going on. God removes the restraints. Man is free to do all that he wants. And because men are sinners, they sin. They sin greatly, disturbingly. So then he says, Romans 1.29, as he begins to characterize these people who have rejected God, he says, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Envy, you guys know what that is? You know it, right? It's wanting what somebody else has and resenting or disliking them for it. Wanting what they have, doesn't stop there, and then resenting them for what they do have or disliking them for it. Now, this could include their looks, their position at work. Beloved, this could include their happiness. You're envious of their happiness. This could include their spouse. You want their spouse. You want a spouse like theirs, and you resent them that they have a spouse like that. Envy. Their car, their house, their clothes. You get the idea? Envy. You guys know, have you ever seen this in our world? Envy? Have you seen it play out in our world at all? You ever had it in your own heart? Murder. Well, that's obvious. Okay, but listen. Maybe this would be shocking to you, maybe not. It is estimated that around the globe last year, approximately 470,000 people were murdered. That was just last year, beloved. 470,000. Just so that you feel the weight of that, that's 1,300 approximately a day. You understand that? Today on Sunday, approximately, there'll be 1,300 people murdered in our earth. That, by the way, 470,000, just trying to get you to get it. That would be the equivalent of the entire population of Fontana, Rialto, and Rancho Cucamonga. Gone in one year. Not gone because they died of natural disasters. Gone because another person took their life. Murder. Strife. They are full of envy, murder, strife. That just means they're inclined to quarrel or fight or argue. They're inclined towards that. They're predisposed towards that. They want to they fight. They're not peaceful. They're not searching out peace, but they want to destroy peace. How about deceit? Deceit, you know this. It's intentionally deceiving or misleading. It is treachery. It is betraying someone's trust. That's all that that Greek word communicates. Deceit. Deceit. They are full of deceit. Again, Paul is not saying every single sinner that rejects God does every single one of these things. He's not saying they're all murderers. He's saying these things are what characterize that group of people. You look at them as a whole, and this is what you find. This is what their depraved mind produces. This is what their sinful hearts produce to one degree or another. Do you find it odd that in the same category as murder is envy, strife, deceit? You think that's strange? See, because we like to categorize things. We say, oh, murder, that's really bad. But envy, eh, come on, we all do that. But to God, that is wickedness. It is wickedness. It's discontentment. Discontentment with the God who is sovereign, who has given you what you have. It's discontentment with Him. It's a rejection of Him. I'm mad. I'm angry that that other person has something I want. And I can't even like them because of it. Deceit is obvious. We we serve a God of truth. He cannot tell a lie. He never lies. He hates lying. We don't think deceit's that bad. It's in the same listing here with murder, guys. All right, maliciousness. That just means the desire to cause harm or pain to another. Okay? Maliciousness, the desire to cause harm or pain to another. You ever had that desire? Huh? Come on. Right? 
there's a couple of things going on here. As we go through the list, if you're thinking just about the God rejectors, if that's all you're thinking about, you're not doing any self-analysis at all, then you're kind of missing the point. Yes, these are things. These definitely, this list should not characterize the Christian. If these things characterize you, I'm just going to tell you, you don't know Christ. You don't know him. You don't have a relationship with him. If these characterize you, if I could say you're known for these things, this is who you are, then you don't know him because he changes you. He transforms you. That doesn't mean, though, that you still don't wrestle with some of these things. And it also doesn't mean that they weren't part of your life before Christ, unhindered. But I bet, as Christians, we can look at this list and go, yeah, that's still, I can see that ugliness rising up in my heart. To see envy, maliciousness. Yeah, I wanted to harm that person. For why? Because they didn't go very fast when the light turned green? I cannot believe the world I live in. People freaking out because you take a little bit too long to step on the gas when the light turns green. Freaking out. I'll kill you. Are you kidding me? I just didn't. I was texting. I didn't see the light. I'm so messed up. We're so messed up. Let's look at the next list. Romans 1, 29 through 31. They are gossips. <gasps> What's that doing in this list? Slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Let's go through them. Gossips. The Greek word basically means whispering slanderers. Whispering slanderers. They destroy people with their malicious words that are spoken in secret. Gossips. The next word is slanderers. Okay? One writer says this, what gossips do secretly, the slanderers do openly. So in other words, slanderers are not secretive about using their words to damage the reputation or character of someone else. Slanderers. How about haters of God? That's kind of a strong statement, haters of God. I would imagine that some people would take, uh, they, wouldn't, they won't like that word hate. They would insist that, Hey, we don't, I don't actually hate God. I mean, I don't go to church. I don't do the whole Jesus thing, but I don't, I don't actually hate God. But listen, when people live in continual rebellion to God, rejecting his absolute rule over their lives, and beloved, if you reject Jesus Christ, you are living in rebellion to God. Hello. You are rejecting his rule over your life. You are rejecting the Son of God. And then they seek to rid themselves of any knowledge of him by replacing him with some idol, some manufactured God, a God that's cool with them, not serving him, not giving their life to him. Do you understand what I'm saying? You've got to think of idolatry bigger than just these little statues. People are idolaters when they create a God that is cool with them doing their own thing and just checking in with God whenever things get rough. I don't know what God that is. It's not the God of the Bible. Do you understand? That's idolatry. When they're cool with not giving their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, not submitting their hearts to Him, they have another God. Because the God that I know, the one true God of the Bible, is clear about what our response to be, should be towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand? So those people cannot honestly say that they don't hate God. They cannot. They may not like that, but that's the truth. By their own actions, they are haters of God. Insolent. They are rude. Ever met some rude people? Ever been rude? That's what insolent is. They are rude. They treat others with contempt. They show a total lack of respect for someone else. No respect. We, I mean, if I had to pick a pick a something that really characterizes our culture, it is insolent. No respect for one another. 
haughty. That means they are arrogant, proud, thinking that they are superior to everyone else. You ever met somebody like that? You ever been that person? Boastful. That means they are braggarts. Literally, that's what it is, braggarts. That just means that they talk with excessive pride about themselves. They're not humble. You ever known somebody that every word out of their mouth is about how great and awesome they are? You ever been that person? Inventors of evil. That's interesting. What that means is they invent new ways to express their sin. They're always thinking up not new ways of righteousness, not new ways to to spread the gospel, not new ways to reach people with the saving message of Jesus Christ. No, they're thinking up about new ways to, to sin, to get at their sin, to express their wickedness, to pursue it with all of their might and their strength and their soul. Inventors of evil. Disobedience to parents. What? Why is that on the list? What? I'm not looking at you. I'm not. I'm going to tell you why it's on the list. Listen, think it through. God grants authority, all authority. Romans 13, look it up. Paul will make an argument there that even the governing authorities don't have their authority from someone else. They have it ultimately from God. God grants authority. God then has been the one to grant authority to parents. And therefore, God is the one who commands children to obey their mother and father. Now, we know that doesn't mean obey them if they tell you to sin. If they say, you know, kill your brother, I'm tired of him, then you can disobey that because that is sin. That is sin. But you must obey. Your, your parents have a level of authority, right? Now, think it through. God is the one who gives parents their authority. They don't have intrinsic authority. It's not like they are born with authority. God is the one that establishes the authoritarian lines. So he says parents have authority. Therefore, children, he commands, obey your mother and your father. Think it through. That then makes total sense for those who reject God, who resist his authority, who want nothing to do with him. It makes total sense then that those people could also be characterized by disobedience to parents. Because ultimately what it is, is disobedience to God. It is rebellion to God. That's what it is. That's what it is. I reject your authority. You know what disobedience to cops is? It's disobedience to God. You know what not paying your taxes is? It's disobedience to God. Read Romans 13. That's what it is, guys. How about foolish? That's the next word here, disobedient to parents. Let's move off that one. Foolish. In the ESV, it's translated without understanding. I like that better, without understanding. But all these words are trying to get at the Greek word, without understanding in the NASB, and translated senseless in the NIV, different translations of the Bible. Paul is not saying that people are dumb or unintelligent. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying they lack moral understanding. Morally, they are without understanding. Morally, they are foolish. Morally, they are senseless. As they are given over to their debased and depraved minds, they are characterized by moral foolishness. Listen, you can be really smart. You can have a high IQ, and many do, and they still live morally foolish lives. Do you understand, did you understand what I just said? intellectual ability, smartness has nothing to do with the level of sin that is committed. If anything, the smart person is just more creative in their ways to get at their sin. Faithless in the ESV, translated untrustworthy, untrustworthy in the NASB. That means that their word is not reliable. They intentionally break their promises. You cannot count on them. You ever know anybody like that? You ever been that person? 
heartless. This might be eye-opening to you. Heartless in the ESV, translated unloving in the NASB. The Greek word basically means, hear me, without natural affection. Without natural affection. That's what the word means. So the way we are to understand that, what they're getting at, is it means hard-hearted towards family. The natural affection that you should have towards your brother, your sister, your wife, your husband, your family is not there. It's not there. Something's missing or it's corrupted. It's kind of there, but it's not really there. There's something wrong with it. So he says they're without natural affection. They're unloving. They're hard-hearted towards their family. One writer says this, it was not at all unusual for pagans. Pagans is a word to describe those back then that were idolaters, God-rejectors. Were they religious? You bet. They had temples. They had systems. They had a form of worship. But they worshipped false gods. And he says of them, it was not unusual for pagans to drown or in some way destroy unwanted offspring. You know what offspring is, right? Children. Your children. It was not unusual for them to drown them or to destroy them, burn them, whatever, to kill them. Now think about our world today. 50 million abortions since 1973 when abortion became legal in this country. That's just in our country. 50 million. Think of all the awful reports that you hear on a regular basis if you watch the news of parents abusing their children. I'm not talking about spanking. I'm talking about real abuse, beating, torturing, whipping, burning. Think about it. And those are just the ones we hear about. And then at the other end of the spectrum, think about even the abuse that's rendered back when children mistreat their elderly parents, when they completely take advantage of them, when they hurt them. Heartless. Heartless. Ruthless in the ESV, the next word, translated unmerciful in the New American Standard Bible. It is having or showing no pity or mercy. That's what it means. It is feeling or showing no sadness or sympathy or compassion for another person's suffering or trouble. Did you get that? Having no compassion. You see someone hurting, you see someone in pain, and there's nothing there, man. There's nothing there. No compassion, no mercy, no pity. Beloved, there are TV shows that, that people watch and they watch the most terrible things happen to people and there is a laugh track that goes along with it. A laugh track. I don't, I don't, I, I don't get it. I do get it. I do understand. It's our depraved hearts. The only word I can think of best that describes this is cold-blooded, man. They're just, people are cold-blooded. That's what Paul is saying. That's what happens when God gives people over to a debased mind. They, couldn't be, they can become cold-blooded, ruthless. They don't care. And here's the climax of this section. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. After he said all that, after he lists these 21 sins, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Listen, quickly. Paul is basically saying that they know what they are doing is wrong. They know it. When we get to Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we will look at what Paul talks about, our conscience, and that God has written his moral law on our conscience. We can't escape it. So we know. We don't even have to have someone telling us. We know. Somehow we know in some way. This isn't right. This isn't right. This is wrong. And then do it anyway. They know it's wrong. They do it. They know they, sh- they deserve to be punished by God for it. They know. And they do it anyway. And all that does is just further prove man's sinful and rebellious nature. His messed up and corrupted heart. Additionally, as if that were not enough, they not only do what they know God condemns, 
but they give their approval. <laughs> they give their approval, their support, their full endorsement to those who also practice these sinful things. Yeah! Do it! I've, I've been in places like that as sin's going on and people are being cheered on. Hmm? You ever been in a place like that? You ever been the one cheering it on? Instead of repenting of their sin, beloved, and seeking to steer others away from sin, right? Sin is destructive. Sin is corrosive. Sin destroys. But instead of repenting, because we sin, but instead of repenting that, going, God, it's wrong. I'm turning from it. And then trying to lead my fellow man away from sin. No, they're not doing that. They're engaging fully in sin, rejecting God, and then encouraging my fellow man to engage in sin with me. That's our culture, beloved. This is what happens when God in His wrath allows sinners to go their own way, when He gives them up or over to the lust of their hearts and their depraved or debased mind. This list should prove to you I hope it proves to you that humanity is truly broken, contaminated, polluted. We are sinners. And consequently, we are capable, listen, we are capable of horrible and awful things. Every single one of us. We are. And if you think you aren't, you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. Jeremiah 17, 9, it says our hearts are deceitful. They lie to us and desperately sick. Desperately sick. Disease, beloved. And in and of ourselves, what this should demonstrate to you is that we lack the very righteousness that we desperately need to be made acceptable to a holy God who is perfectly righteous and loathes sin, hates sin. Wants to destroy sin. We don't stand any chance in and of ourselves with this God. We don't stand any chance. He releases the restraints. Look what happens. Look what happens. Look around. Look at our world. Mark, Jesus says this in Mark 7, verse 21 through 22. He says, for from within, within, Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Out of our hearts, beloved. Out of the heart of man. Not some men. And he's not just talking men, that gender, man, mankind, men and women. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's what comes out of our hearts. Beloved, when you start to understand the Word of God, believe the Word of God, read the Word of God, then anytime you hear somebody say, follow your heart, we have good hearts, beloved, they're, just, they're, they're either rejecting the truth or they're uninformed. They're uninformed. No, we do not. No, we do not. And it is only when someone realizes how messed up they truly are, how, how utterly incapable they are of fixing themselves or making themselves right with God, it is only then that they can truly appreciate the gospel. Only then, really, do they appreciate the gospel and really begin to understand and be grateful for the grace of God that is made available to sinners through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It is only then. As one writer said, if you don't think you need Jesus Christ, if you don't think that, it is because you don't know how bad off you really are. You don't know. And so Paul labors, labors to make that very clear. We are a messed up lot. When left to ourselves, we will do all manner of evil things. It doesn't mean we will do everything on that list. 
but we'll do some of them. Maybe some of us will do all of them. We have no righteousness of our own. We are guilty before God. We stand condemned. Our only hope, our only hope is to place our faith in Jesus Christ who gave himself on the cross to take the wrath of God against every one of our vile and wicked sins. And not only that, beloved, but Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous. Jesus Christ was holy. Jesus Christ was the divine Son of God. And what he does when I place faith in him, get this, he credits to me his very righteousness. Making me fully, completely acceptable to a holy and perfect God. That's the gospel. But if you're running around still thinking, hey, I'm not too bad. I'm okay. I mean, I know I need a little help here or there. But I can make myself right with God. Then the gospel to you is nonsense. It makes no sense. Jesus wasted his time. I could have got to God without him. Nice guy and all, but please. You know what I'm saying? We come now at the close of this service, and we're going to celebrate communion together. We need to do that because we've already gone over. I want you to think these things through. There There are many of you here, I would assume, who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have a relationship with him, a real one. Not a fake one, not a make-believe one, a real one with Jesus Christ. So when you hear a message like this, what you should think about is, if it were not for you, Jesus, if it were not for you, I would be absolutely lost. Absolutely lost. There would be no hope for me. That's demonstrated by the fact that when God removes the restraints, look what we do. We are a wicked lot, a messed up lot, a depraved lot. We are born sinners. And if it were not for Christ, if it were not for you, if it were not for the fact that you gave yourself for me, I would be doomed. My sentence would be hell. And I would justly deserve it. For those of you who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't mean you know about him, it would be hard not to know about him and live in this country. Possible, certainly possible, but hard. You know about him, but you don't know him. You don't have a relationship with him. I hope that you will understand that if you don't place your faith in him, you are doomed. You're doomed. You are condemned. Even now, you live under the very wrath of God, and all you are awaiting is the fulfillment of it. That's your destiny. That's your future. That's your future. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. If you will place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He promises, and you know what's awesome? This man does not break his promises. He promises He will save you at that very moment. He will rescue you. He will apply forgiveness to you through His blood, through His death on your behalf, and He will credit to your bankrupt account His very righteousness making you absolutely reconciled with God. Isn't that amazing? That is the gospel. That is the grace that we celebrate here every Sunday. And that's the grace we're going to celebrate right now. As we take this communion meal, it is for you who believe in Jesus Christ, who put your faith in Him. We take a, a piece of bread, a cracker, and some juice. And these things represent His body and His blood. I'm going to read the passage to you quickly, and then we're going to do that together. 1 Corinthians 11:23 reflects what we're doing right now. Paul says, "For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, the night before they crucified him, he took bread and he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is what my this bread represents, my body which is for you. I love that. For you I'm going to give it up for you, you sinners. I'm going to give it up for you." I'm going to rescue you. Dead in your trespasses and sins, I am going to rescue you. Under the wrath of God, I am going to rescue you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim, you make known Christ's death on your behalf when you partake in this meal. That's what we're memorializing. That's what we're remembering. And if it were not for that, you'd have no hope. I'd have no hope. Remember that, beloved. Remember that as we share in this meal even now. In a moment, the ushers will come forward. They're going to pass the elements. If you're not a Christian, if you're not sure, do not partake in this meal. Don't do it. It's a mockery then. Don't do it. And come and talk to us about how you could partake in the meal in the future by getting saved. If you are saved, this is our meal. This is our celebration. And we gladly partake. We rejoice that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God in His mercy, His grace and His love reached out to us and provided us a Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. We'll partake at the end, so wait until everyone has been served. And I think I'm supposed to... Do I pray for the communion meal? I I always mess this up. Yeah, I'll pray for it even now. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this celebration we call communion, Father, as we memorialize Christ's death, his sacrificial, substitutionary, sin-bearing death on our behalf, those who have placed their faith and hope and trust and confidence in him and him alone to make them right with you, to make them acceptable, to reconcile them to you. Father, we thank you for it. Lord, may we, may we celebrate in a way that honors and, and glorifies you even now. May we rejoice as we just take a few moments as these elements are passed to reflect on your goodness to us, on your love for us as we've experienced those things truly through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen.